You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so here's what we're going to see, right? We've seen the last couple of weeks, clearly, there are multiple issues with the people of Israel, and yet, what we will see now is that really, at the root of all of it, there is, there's one problem. There's one problem. So let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. It says this, Behold, this is the Lord speaking, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So here's the thing. Into all the mess and into all the dysfunction of Israel, the Lord says, Behold, I am sending my messenger. And you would think, well, wait a minute. Isn't Malachi already serving that purpose? Can we just kind of move this story along, right? And yet this messenger that the Lord promises to send fulfills really really one, one significant purpose. And, and what I want us to do, just for clarity's sake, before we get into the, the why the Lord is going to send this messenger, is for us to understand that there's, that there's really two, right? So he says, behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before who? Before me. And he says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple as the messenger of the covenant, right? So two messengers are sent. One messenger is sent to prepare the way for the messenger, the messenger of the covenant. And it tells us a little bit about what this, what this messenger of the covenant will look like, what, he's, what, what characterizes him, right? It tells us that he's like a refiner's fire and that he's like fuller's soap. And essentially all that is, is just it's two methods of, of purifying something, right? The refiner's fire, right? When you refine metal, what do you do? You heat it up to the degree that other impurities fall away so that there's a purity of metal that remains, right? Little, little science lesson for you. That's why 24 karat gold is better than 8 karat gold, right? It's a measure of purity. That's what it is. They're saying there, this has been heated to a certain degree, so much so that there's, there's this much gold left. fuller soap, right? Again, it's just, it's a method of purification. It's a cleansing, right? It's a process by which you cleanse wool, actually, and you use this, you use this strong alkaline solution called lye to do it, and then you lay it out on the rocks, and you, you essentially beat the dirt out of it. So we have this messenger that's being sent of the Lord, a messenger of the covenant, who is characterized as an agent of purification, an, ag- an agent of removal of all that which is not gold, of all that which is not wool. But why? Right? Verses 3 and 4 will, will give us that answer. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Now, we don't have time to go all the way back through uh, chapter 2, but essentially we saw, right, that the covenant of Levi, the covenant that God had made with Levi, who was a a, a priest, right, on behalf of the, the people of Israel, that that covenant had been profaned, right, that the offerings that they were offering up were no longer going to be accepted by God because they were impure. And so the reason that God is going to send this messenger, this messenger of the covenant, who is characterized as an agent of refinement, an agent of purification, is precisely because the hearts of Israel need purifying. You see, he says he will purify the sons of Levi. And look, it's like we've said all along throughout this series, right? The chief problem that the Lord has with Israel is not simply that they are offering unacceptable sacrifices, as we saw in chapter 1, or that they're marrying the wrong kinds of people and then divorcing them, right? That that's, that that's not the chief issue, that that's, that that's a symptom, but that there's, there's something underneath in the people of Israel that is what God is ultimately mostly concerned with. Because what you'll notice is that It doesn't say that this messenger of the covenant is coming to purify their offerings. It says he's coming to purify them. And then in verse 4, it tells us that when that happens, that when this messenger of purification comes, and when he enacts his ministry of purification, that then and only then, The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So he's not just going to fix what they do, right? It's not just about making sure that T's are crossed and that I's are dotted. But he's actually going to fix why they do it. The reason they do what they do. He's going to... to, refine the hearts of the people of Israel. Israel's root problem, the why in their heart that has led to the catastrophic what of everything that we have read in Malachi chapters 1 and 2 and now 3, all of that has been symptomatic of this one thing. The people of Israel's hearts are impure. And... As is usually the case in the Bible, what we're going to see next is how that goes on to affect them in, 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 their, in their everyday life, in every facet, in every area of their lives. And we're just, I mean, we're, we're going to get three very general ones. But this one problem leads, to, leads us to three broken relationships. And we'll start in, in verse 5. It says this, Then, right, then I will draw near to you, For judgment, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So the first thing that we see that's broken by the impurity of heart for the people of Israel is their relationship with the world. Now, how, right? Now, if we, 
again, if, just quickly, if we remind ourselves that the people of Israel were meant to be a people for God's own possession, a people both to whom and then through whom God purposed to reveal himself to the world, if we remember that that's the reality, what a shame. What a shame then that they're instead known as people who are sorcerers, adulterers, who swear falsely, who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, who thrust aside the sojourner, who don't fear God. You see, the the reason that Israel existed, the reason that they were the people of God was so that they could reveal God as a God of steadfast hope, not the mystical uncertainty of sorcery. They were meant to reveal God as a God of faithfulness, not of unfaithfulness and adultery. They were meant to reveal the character of God as one whose promises are true, not as someone who swindles people by their words. They were meant, they were meant to reveal God as a God who is just to, to those who are His, to the widow, to the fatherless, to the worker not as an abuser or an overlord or a slave master. They were meant to reveal God as a God who throws open the doors of his kingdom to the sojourner, not as the xenophobe. They were meant to proclaim God as a God worthy of fear, not one worthy of mockery. Their relationship with the world was always meant to serve the purposes of proclaiming a good and gracious God in all of His wonderful character. Needless to say, they've failed. It's a broken relationship. Now, this is just a kind of a a side note, a moment of application, a break in the middle of all of this. What this list, what this verse ultimately does for us is, is this. It crushes the compartmentalization that we so desperately want to live in. Here's what I mean by that. I think for many of us, uh, we see sort of a perceived difference between that which is secular and that which is sacred. And then what we do is we kind of compartmentalize every little area of our lives accordingly, right? And that we kind of have like, so this is what I do with church, Right? And then this is my work life, and then this is my romance life. And look, God is really ultimately only concerned with this little portion over here. But as far as my work goes, and as far as my romance goes, and as far as all this other stuff goes, He's really not, he's not really concerned with that so long as this, this church area is in order. And yet what this list shows for us is that God cares intimately to whom we preach. He cares intimately how we love. He cares intimately what we promise. He cares intimately how we work. He cares intimately about how we tend to the needy. There is no division in between what is perceived to be sacred and what is perceived to be secular in that all the earth belongs to the Lord and that all that God has given you has been given you in order that through their good and righteous exercise, he might be known as a good and righteous God. That's the first broken relationship, their broken relationship with the world. The second broken relationship is in verse 6. It says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. 
Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the Lord hasn't changed. The Lord is steadfast and good. He is righteous in all His ways. He is faithful in all of His works. That's the only reason that they haven't been consumed, is what that says, right? And again, this is keeping in line with that image of the refiner's fire. And that the refiner's fire consumes all that is not gold, right? And yet God says, I have not changed. That's the reason that you have not been consumed, because I will make my promises come to pass, even though, even though you have turned aside from my statutes. So this broken relationship isn't isn't down to God. It's not because God is standing aloof and saying, you got what you deserved. In fact, in the middle of it, he's saying, return to me and I will return to you. But Israel didn't believe that, right? We talked about it last week. They've now written their own narrative. They've taken their feelings about, about what God has promised them, their disbelief, their insecurity, their unwillingness to trust in God, and they've elevated those above the promises of God. And look, this is why it's so dangerous for us to listen to our feelings rather than God's word. They reveal ultimately that our hearts are impure. You see, I think, I think when we talk about this, and again, this is kind of another little aside. Um, when you talk about this feeling, it's kind of, it, it, or, or this this sort of war between our feelings and, and what God's Word has to say, that, that there's kind of a, a thought, well, it's either, right? It's either all the way over on this side of the spectrum or it's all the way over here. So either our, our feelings matter infinitely and we should ignore the Word of God where appropriate based on our feelings or it's the Word of God only and God doesn't care about our feelings. And yet... This is what makes the Psalms such a wonderful place in Scripture. In it, in the Psalms, the psalmists declare with great clarity their feelings while readily submitting them to Scripture, right? In that depression and sadness and and insecurity are all expressed comprehensively, but they're expressed right alongside the, the desire to trust God for who He says He is. So it's not that God doesn't care about our feelings. He just knows that our feelings aren't ultimately what's best for us. Because when we follow our feelings, we end up saying to the Lord, you know what? I don't think that if I return to you, that you will return to me. So there's a broken relationship between Israel and the world. There's a broken relationship between Israel and God And here's another final example. There's a broken relationship between Israel and money. And here's what it says in the remainder of verse 7 and into verse 8. It says, But you say, how shall we return? 
will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, right, so the people of Israel say, how have we robbed you? And the Lord responds, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now God's, God's been using aggressive language throughout the book of Malachi, but I, I don't know that there's been stronger language than robbed in that you don't like accidentally rob someone, you know? So, oops, I stole your wallet, you know, or this this thing that was yours I now have in my possession. Um, God is using aggressive language, and yet He's using appropriate language, in that what God is saying, and what the people of God, this people Israel should have known from the multitude of of times in their history that God has shown this to be true, is that all the earth belongs to God. That everything in it is His, including them as a people. So when they withhold giving, it means that they are withholding from God something that belongs to Him, that is already His. You see, this this image that we're given of the storehouse, right, in verse 10, bring bring the full tithe into the storehouse is a, is a fairly common biblical image. It's an image for abundance, an image for security. It was a place designated for, for storage in, of, of either agricultural produce or, or the treasures of a kingdom or temple. Right? In summary, storehouses in the Bible are usually a sign of prosperity and blessing. When a good storehouse fulfills its purpose, it has three essential qualities. One, it's it's abundant, meaning it's adequate to meet the needs of the people when they arise. It's valuable in that there's actually things in it that matter, right? And it's secure, meaning it can't be taken away. As the people of God, they were not only to give to God's storehouses, but they were ultimately invited to trust in and partake of and enjoy the riches of His storehouses. You see, that's what's so crazy about all this. We read this and we kind of, I know, right? Everybody tenses up a little bit. We're going to talk about that thing that I hate talking about. And yet what we see here is that, that God is ultimately inviting them into something that is, that is not primarily about what we're giving up so much as primarily about what we receive in being able to place our trust in a storehouse that is not manufactured by, guarded by, or kept secure by people who, who can fail at that quite quickly. So here's what I'll say about this just for us quickly. How you think about money is a reflection of what you think about God. (laughs) It is. If God is withheld from you, you will withhold from others. That's what's happening with, with Israel, right? That's the narrative they believe. They believe, God, you have skimped with me. 
your promises have not been fulfilled to me yet. And so I'm going to withhold in the hopes that maybe I'll find some comfort, some measure of comfort from this. If God has been generous with you, you will be generous with others, right? And that if you understand all good gifts, right, come from above, from the Father of lights, as James would say. If you understand that, if you understand that life and breath and health and everything, everything that we have is ours, then, uh, or is God's, and He's given it to us, it's a lot easier to let some of those things go and that we recognize that they were always His to give and they're His to take away. And we'll get back to that in just a second. But so if all of Israel's issues, right, all of Israel's issues are proceeding from impure hearts, right? Their, their issues with the world, their issues with God, their issues with money are ultimately all symptoms of this, this impure heart. The question that we probably have to ask ourselves is how do we get pure hearts? Right? Because much of, what, much of what's taking place with the people of Israel characterizes us, right? I mean, I read that and I kind of shudder a little bit. And if, and, and if the conclusion of Malachi is that, is that these things that, that are sort of outward and visible are symptoms of, of a sickness inside of me, man, like that, <laughs> yeah, we should cringe a little bit. Here's the thing, right? I can't just say, I'm going to have a pure heart. That's like me saying, I'm going to be a good dancer. No, I'm not. Ask anyone that's seen it, right? I'm like a baby horse learning how to walk. Or Drake. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So the question is, how, like, what can I do? How do I fix that? What, you know? Well, Malachi is going to be greatly helpful to us, right? Verse 16 says this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. There's what Malachi tells us takes place, right? That there are those whose impurities have been removed, right? If, if the problem in verse 5 at the conclusion of the verse says that they did not fear the Lord of hosts, that that's what led to them oppressing the fatherless and the poor and the worker, if that's what led them into sorcery and to all these other things, that they did not fear God, he says that there are those, that there are those who do fear me whose impurities have been removed. There are those who will be cleansed. They will fear God for His great kindness and for His awesome faithfulness. And their names will be put in this book, the book of remembrance, right? That still doesn't answer the question of how, right? How do we get, how do we get into that book? Well, verse 17 says this, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, 
in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. You see, 1 John um, chapter 1 says this in verses 7 through 9. If we walk in the light as he, being Jesus, as in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to know how the book of remembrance gets written? You want to know how entrance into the book of remembrance is acquired? Just through the refining and the purifying work that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. See, if there's an impurity in us, if there's something that needs to be refined, if there's something that needs to be washed away, 1 John tells us that if we confess those things, that He is faithful and just to not just forgive us, right? To where it's like, I see that that's there and it's okay, but that he will actually cleanse that impurity from us. That the refining fire will come and that it will remove those impurities, not just paper over them, not just cover them so that you can't see them, but you still know they're behind there, but he will take them away. They will no longer be a part of our identity of who we are. Jesus, the messenger of the covenant. And get this, like, I, you know, I'm sure we caught it, but I want to read it one more time. This is God talking. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And here's the thing. Neither you nor I have served God in such a way that we deserved sparing. But the miracle of the cross is this, right? That Jesus came and served perfectly, right? He came and served perfectly, and yet the result of that was not, was not a sparing. In fact, he was the opposite of spared. He was crushed for our iniquities, as Isaiah 53 would tell us. He was wrung out. He was poured out as an offering. He, His work, His service to the Lord is now what constitutes our record, right? And what the Bible tells us is this, is that for our sake, He became poor in order that we might be made rich. And it's in this, it's in this, in this work of Jesus, in this refining work of Jesus that he now does in our hearts, that we begin to experience healing in our relationship with the world. In that we're free to live lives that are not characterized by the uncertainty of relying upon sorcery. We're free to live lives 
that are faithful. We are free to speak truth. We are free to pay the worker what is commensurate with his work. We are free to serve the widow and the fatherless. We are free to welcome in the sojourner without fear because we welcome them as they have as we have been welcomed. He heals our relationship with God and that we can come before God and we can say, "Lord, we we trust you." We trust you because once for all, you sent your most treasured possession, your very own son, and he took upon himself all that was due for our sin. We can trust you. We can know that you're good. Even when we are perplexed, we are not crushed. Even when we are persecuted, we are not abandoned. And he heals our relationship with money. in that we can begin to realize that in Christ we have already been given all things. And so there's no need to cling to anything that is here, to anything in this earthly storehouse, because in Christ the riches of God's heavenly storehouses have already been poured out upon us. And we will enjoy and experience them in all of eternity by His good and gracious character, His kindness to us in leading us to repentance. The good news this morning, brothers and sisters, is that our impure hearts, through the person and work of Jesus, are made new. And that all blemishes, all spots, all hint of impurity, all of those things are removed by His perfect, substitutionary, atoning work on our behalf. Let's pray.